Welcome to episode number four in season one of Eno Tools University. This one, I'm going to say in a very confident way, sort of a bold statement. This one's entitled, How to Start a Winery. I have a special guest today. Genevieve Rogers is with us, and I think that uh, I'll let Genevieve uh, tell you folks the name of her company and how to find her on the internet. You're going to want to, if you're somebody starting a winery, this is a person you definitely would like to talk to. And of course, you have uh, you have Joe in the eastern U.S., that's me. You've got Genevieve on the West Coast, but she has customers coast to coast. So without uh, further delay, Genevieve, please in- introduce yourself. Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, so I'm Genevieve Rogers. My winery consulting company is called PEMDAS, P-E-M-D-A-S Solutions. Uh, and if you're a math geek, you'll know that uh, acronym right away. And uh, you can find me at winery.consulting online. At- genius, if you ask me, winery.consulting. That's... Um- that's that's pretty good marketing in itself. Uh, you know, I appreciate I appreciate that. I was very fortunate to get it, um, and it doesn't hurt that I've had it for more than sixteen years. So, um, it's a yeah, it's great. So if you Google winery consulting, you will find me. I'm going to do that right now. I think everyone out there already has heard the long boring story about. Uh, how Joe found his way into this industry. If you wouldn't mind, you know, whatever career path you were on before deciding to get into the the wine industry, can you start somewhere back there and let folks know? Sure, sure. So I I had no idea that I was going to go into the wine industry growing up. It wasn't even on my radar. My goal was to be an aeronautical engineer. Wow. I was into planes. And that's what I went to school for uh, all the way up into my very last year at college where I started working with a new, um, a new competition, a new United States competition, which was a hybrid electric vehicle. And I started doing that in college and loved it. And then graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and went on to work for Ford Motor Company. And my goal was to make cars. Wow. So, one of the big of, boys. One of the big boys drove from California uh, to Detroit and started working and realized fairly quickly that that was not the best place for me. What, and, Detroit uh, or a, a car company? Yes. Both. Oh, well, yeah. I'm one of those yeah. weirdos. I actually love Detroit. I don't know if uh, if I've ever had an opportunity to tell you about that. We do have some customers around there. Um, you know, quick shout out to Youngblood Vineyards and Detroit Vineyards. Um, one is in town and the other is more of an agritourism sort of destination. That would be Youngblood. And but back in the 90s, in a previous life, I worked for a firm based there in Detroit mm-hmm. and I was uh, stymied by how much that city has changed since uh, a million years ago when I was in another career, another life. Um, 
back in the 90s, I'm dating myself. Back in the 90s, I wore a suit and tie to work, and our company headquarters was there. And I remember walking down that street and wishing that I had bodyguards. Right. Um, and now, um, now you go to Detroit, and holy cow, it makes Brooklyn look like it could use some gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's saying a lot if you've seen how many hipsters hang out in Brooklyn these days. Yeah. Well, the nineties was when I was there. Oh. Uh, the early the early nineties. So uh it was it was a shock. And I think the biggest piece for me and the time when I like recognized that this was not the right career path for me was when I and this is a little story. So I was at a retirement luncheon. And it was the 50-year gold, literal gold watch retirement. And the gentleman stood up and, you know, thanked everybody. And there's a huge number of people there. And he said, you know, I've been blessed to be able to work on the Lincoln Lights for my entire career. Ooh. And I thought, oh, my God, that is terrifying to me to like to and if you think about it so this was the early 90s that was almost the entire lifespan of lincoln almost not quite but it was not very far away and i just couldn't imagine doing the same thing every day for 50 years i can't even imagine doing it the same thing every day for one year, which is how I sort of got into the wine industry. Uh, I, so I, I looked around and I thought, okay, so if I'm not going to be this type of engineer, you know, what do I do? And so I went uh, and I took the easy way out and I went back to school and got Where? an MBA. I went to Chapman University in Southern California and it's just a little university, got my MBA. And then went back to engineering for a little while until I got a call from my parents and they had bought a property in Sonoma County, California. Uh, and secretly, uh, I believe my dad's goal was to have a winery, but he didn't tell anybody that certainly not his spouse. Uh, and, uh, but he, <laughs> he called me up and said, Hey, you know, our neighbors is Chalk Hill Winery. I think we could grow grapes. We need some help. Would you come help us? So in my mind. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm laughing because, you know, I live in Missouri. I'm from the Finger Lakes. I've got customers from, you know, here to there, uh, everywhere. And, and someone's saying maybe we can grow grapes next door to to Mr. Uh, Mr. Ramey's uh, former place of employment. That just... That's funny. <laughs> right. Maybe. Yes. Maybe. He's like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll grow some Chardonnay. Like, okay. And still at that time, uh, this was getting into the later 90s, I, I still, the wine industry was not on my radar. I was starting to drink wine, but mostly it was uh, light, sweet rosés. But it still wasn't in my radar. And I thought, okay, I'll come help. I'll learn what I need to learn. And then I can always go back to engineering. Now so that wait, was nine. Hold on. I got to call you out on something. So 
were these light sweet rosés actually called blush or Zinfandel? Just checking. They were white Zinfandels. In fact, I don't think we even called, we didn't even use the whole word Zinfandel. We just called it white Zin. Okay. So there's, there's no shame in that, but I just wanted to paint the picture because, you know, uh, everybody, everybody probably has seen my white beard and can imagine that I go back as far as, um, oh, you know, Wild Irish Rose, but I, I don't really want to talk about that. Um, I did have the pleasure of knowing Mr. Sands, though. Another conversation for another time. Other Mr. Sands, not Richard. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, they're... Um, yeah. Yeah, that another. was that that was my that was my experience at to the to that point with wine mm -hmm. uh, and that quickly changed so i took some classes at uh the local junior college in um vineyard Where? management santa in, rosa? in santa rosa yeah santa rosa jc yep still have a great program uh and they had a fantastic um, gentleman who who ran that program so uh, I did that we planted a vineyard yeah it's still a producing vineyard and uh, as it often happens you know you're not really happy with just growing grapes because once you have grapes you look around and think hey we could make wine so then I started designing the winery and bringing in equipment and we made our first vintage in 1999 all right so and I, gotta stop you. I gotta stop you right there so you know if you've spent any time on the how to start a winery page on enotools.com you know that that's one of the three most common ways that folks uh who are listening end up owning wineries you know they planted grapes first right and right. So this is cool because that means when you talk to somebody like that, this isn't academic for you. Like, you know what it's like to worry about site selection and aspect on the property and what clone do I use and what rootstock should I be asking for and all that. Yes. And since that time, I've taken more classes in uh, vineyard management. So that is one of the things that I help clients do is determine, you know, what they should grow and what varieties, what clones, what spacing, what kind of trellising system they should use, uh, how much water they're going to need, all those kinds of decisions I help clients, I help clients make. And I managed our vineyard uh, from a winemaking point of view, not from the day-to-day -day point of view, but I managed it from the winemaking point of view so that we could get the grapes that we wanted to make the types of wine that we wanted. And then I became the winemaker. Cool. So when so, did you change that to a capital W? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly when it changed. I, I was our winemaker for just about a decade. Uh, I also started my own winery, which was at that time a virtual winery. So um, we didn't have a tasting room. And that's also something that you do is like you're making wine from someone else and you and your partner think, you know, we could do this ourselves and you start making other wines. So I did that too. Uh, and then it was after my second child was born 
that I moved into, instead of doing it all, I moved into helping people do it. And that's really when my consulting really kind of started again. That's cool. Um, full disclosure for the listeners, Genevieve and I crossed paths uh, working on a, a project in uh, one of the Atlantic states. So well into, you know, the eastern half of the U.S. I think and I was out also impressed to find out that Genevieve was helping to do a little bit of mitigation and um, course correction for another customer in a neighboring state, another, you know, far eastern state. So there is a a coast to coast sort of uh, application for um, for PEMDAS solutions, and so I'm going to back up just a hair or fast okay. forward whatever we're doing. I, I feel like this is um, I love the term organic because if I sound like I have a piece of notebook paper with some kind of guidelines for what we're going to talk about, that would be an incorrect assumption. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to say organic, meaning we're, we're just going to shoot from the hip because it works. Okay. I, think, I think you can sense it. Here's the thing I'm wondering about, because usually I'm the guy, if somebody gets a, gets the idea to start a winery, I think they, they figure out from, uh, from the tone, from the trajectory of the, of the information that I put out there on social media and the web and whatever else, you know, or even if you call me. Um, I tend to not want to be in your shoes. I would rather, you know, I would rather talk to the person when they figured out things like what should I grow and things like that. And, um, what's my, what's my plan for distribution? Um, how do we market this place and stuff like that? So I wonder what's the most common phone call you get? Like what's, how do people start with you? Oh, people call me and they say, I, um, I want to start a winery. Sometimes it's, they have property. Some of them have been home winemakers. That's very common. Uh, some of them have been, uh, retired and they made money and they love wine, but it's always like, I have this dream. I want to start a winery but I don't know what to do next. And Um, those are the calls that I get. You know, I'm familiar with one of those types. The um, sometimes a person comes from another industry where they've been wildly successful and they walk in and, and uh, or, you know, figuratively speaking, they come into this industry and they think that their success in, in their past is going to automatically translate. Sometimes, you see it work. Sometimes you see that person's expertise and instincts, uh, regardless of all the background noise. Um, sometimes they absolutely thrive. Is that your experience or have you had some um, growing pains getting people acclimated? I've always seen growing pains uh, getting people acclimated because very few people start out in really what's a sales-based hospitality industry. And so I try and help people understand like what they're getting into and explain to them the kind of the pieces that they need. And some of those pieces are like mindsets or personalities that they need to have on board. 
if they're starting with me, then I feel like we've got a leg up because I've already decided that they don't have all the answers. Uh, if they if they're not calling me and they've decided they have all the answers, then um, it's hard to have all the answers in this industry. It's a very unique situation because you're a food processor, food manufacturer. So you have that aspect of it. You have agriculture. So you're a farmer relying on the weather. And then you're a hospitality organization and you're dependent on sales and you have to do all of those things. And that's a really difficult thing for people to get their head around if they've not been in this industry at all. Yes, it is. And I think the folks who now I'm seeing some faces of, of uh, some people over the last, you know, just shy of 20 years I've seen succeed and do well. The ones who seem to find the rhythm, they found the beat and, um, you know, they took notes where they should and, and did well. Um, it, it can definitely be done. I've seen a couple that didn't go so well, but I've seen a couple that uh, would make you want to just Xerox their business plan. Um, I mean, some people have just flown into this industry and basically started printing their own money. I think it was a combination of, oh, I don't know. I'm under the impression that Napa Valley did very well because of timing and a perfect place to grow certain grapes and the popularity of those varietals. But San Francisco was there to feed it. Right. And one story that comes to mind, I won't mention the name of the winery for fear of litigation of some sort, but uh, you knew ownership at this place. You'd know why I say that. Um, one winery was built in the middle of nowhere uh, between two towns in a part of the world where absolutely nothing is happening after five o'clock. And they grew some, you know, they used some local fruit. They used some fruit brought in from either end of the country or both. And they had a certain revenue target in mind and they had a certain type of, of hospitality feel in mind because I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's agriculture, it's farming, partnering with mother nature, but it's hospitality and it's sales. And rule number one is make it easy for the customer to part with their money. And these guys made it super easy. They had entertainment, they had unconventional hours for their retail area. And it was a more the merrier kind of feel to the place the minute you got out of the car. And these guys blew away year one revenue projection in Q1 of year one. And I was shocked and very, very impressed. So a year later, when I came back to, um, to do the preventive maintenance on their crush equipment, I snuck in the building and I went up and acted as a tourist and went and tasted through all their wines. And I'm telling you, they didn't let me down. I mean... These guys were, were, were doing it right from the word go. And it all came back to the, uh, the very talented person they brought in to be their, you know, the person in charge of production and, um, and to be head winemaker who knew the recipe. He knew the handshake and uh, had the music memorized. So it worked. But yeah, I think, I think the key that you, or the key that I'd like to focus on that you bring out is that it had a feeling to it when you stepped out of your car. 
And that feeling made you want to stay and built an expectation that things were going to be good and it was going to be what you expected it to be. Like this was going to be a fun happening place and the, and the wines were going to be good. And that's the first thing that I tell my clients, even people who end up not being my clients. So when I do classes and this is the first thing that I tell people is you need to decide what experience you want to create. Not what you're necessarily what your vision is, although it's that, um, but it, people get, when I say vision, people get caught up in, well, I want to make good wine. Like, well, everybody wants to make good wine. I mean, that's not a vision for a winery. That's just business. But what, what do you want to create? What feelings do you want your, your customers to have? That's where you start. And the people that I've seen who are more successful do that right away as they create this experience and that experience matches the wines that they're making both in the style of wine the quality of the wine the price point of the wine it matches their packaging and it matches the feel of the place and all those things work together so that when you go to that winery you buy wine because in the that's the difference of having a really, really expensive hobby, which is making wine, yeah. and having a business, which is selling wine. Yes. So I try to have people get like set up to have the business. So do you give advice on um, training the retail room staff? Do you go that far? I talk to people about what kind of training they need uh i don't actually train staff but i do talk to them about what kind of training they need so that they can find either they can create it themselves or they can find someone local who can come and do their training that's not my biggest uh strength but i do believe really strongly and i tell my clients like your retail staff needs to be trained on both hospitality and how to close a sale. I mean, we're not talking used car salesman kind of mentality, but everybody who comes <laughs> and tastes your wine should walk out with wine because you're not a tasting room, you're a sales room. You happen to ta have people taste the wine so that they can enjoy it and that makes them want to buy it. But that's not the whole goal. The whole goal is for people to walk out the door with wine that they purchased. Well said. Let's let's pretend that I'm a random phone call. I found your website because I Googled uh, winery consulting and nice work, Genevieve. Do you know the uh, quick quick joke? You know the best place to hide a dead body? No. Page two of Google search results. <laughs> yes yes fortunately i'm on page one yes you are uh loud and proud right there i don't even have to scroll down i mean you're like That's the right. second. top of the fold i mean you're you're the first i now be honest is this is this an organic search result i'm seeing or is this uh did you have to throw money at this 
I I do have some ads. Um, but not and, specifically, uh, not SEO specific or? Nope. No, I and, it, and I target different parts of the world at different times. But it's basically, I started my winery blog in, it was 99 or 2000. I've been doing it for a while. And, uh, and I've had a website for, it's kind of, it's changed looks and it was a free website for a while. And, and now it's clearly not. Um, but that has given me this longevity and to be able to get to the top of, of Google search. Yeah. I was killing it on that for probably the first 10 years that, that I was doing this because I understood the spiders and I understood you know, most of the ins and outs of this. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not so much anymore, but, uh, you know, when the penguins and pandas came along, it really hammered me because they're, they're looking for different criteria for the strength of the website. And one of the right. things I keep getting jacked by is when I go into the analytics for Google, I find out that my site is being pointed to and mimicked by a bunch of Russian uh, HTML stuff. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, I just, for anybody who does that for a living, you just found out where the is on that. I have no clue how to explain that to you, but um, Google's analytics told me that that was really hammering my ranking and they're linking to my site and copying my site faster than I can, you know, undo it. Yeah. Um, so there's somebody out there must know how to fix that. And guess what? I'm frugal, also known as cheap, and I'm not going to change it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do my, I do do my own website work. Um, But I, and I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a social media person. Um, I would probably uh, do better if I were, but it's really not me. So I, I do, uh, you know, fits and starts, but I do make sure that my, all of my pages have good SEO rankings. And my blog posts are up there. And I do pay attention to that because this is how people find me. They well, they Google winery consulting and, and all over the world. And that's how they find me. So it's an, it's an important piece of business now. Well, I think, you know, for a winery, it's probably a little more simplistic because when you're in a certain area, this is, this is a question, by the way, it sounds like I'm just, you know, taking over, but this is leading into a question. It seems like when you're in a certain area and you Google wineries, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia wineries, it seems like blam, you know, it's, it's an easy search. It, it's kind of, I thought what Google was built for, you know, it's I'm here and I'm searching for this type of business and it's going to spit that out. And then as a tourist, it's easy for me to go and find these places just, you know, using Charlottesville as an example that I find really really satisfying about you know the way the internet works but social media to me i think it can strengthen those results if it's cross-linked through various platforms and there's there's click-throughs and there's you know all that other stuff there's engagement there's some kind of engagement once people get there um i think that that's probably good for wineries too because it's a part of marketing you cannot ignore and i'm sure that the majority of good-sized wineries have somebody on staff who just does only that but for me Social media is nothing more than a, a necessary evil because I can't get on there and say exactly what I want to say. 
And what I what I really want to say, the message I really want to put out to the public is you've got to be shitting me. You're using that as a closure. <laughs> so social media, yes, it's a necessary evil. I don't think it should be the backbone of your actual presence. I think that personal interaction is still the best way, you know, to get your message across to folks. In your experience, Genevieve, how what percentage of the incoming phone calls or emails you get are are the type that you you know can put on the list and say yes this is a this is somebody i know i can help and like how much wheat versus chaff do you actually get from the internet most of the people that i talk to i talk out of the industry because people don't have a really good understanding of of what uh, they'd be getting into you know, it probably burns comes down to 15 to 20 percent are people who will actually move forward. For the most part, it comes from them reading something online or Googling me or making those connections um, that, you know, are, are driven by the Internet and things that are on the Internet. But the reality is that most people that I talk to end the phone call with, oh, yeah, I'll call you. And the reality is, like, I just talked them out of doing this. And some people just straight up say, this is not for you. What's the red flag? Uh, The red flag is uh, when they're doing it while they have a full-time job. Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one. Right. Because this is a full-time job and starting a winery is a full-time job or they're very, very, very small. Um, and they're under a couple hundred cases in an area where they're not, where they're selling in the twenties and under, uh, and, and there, and I, and I tell people that you just, like you're going to barely cover costs and it's going to take a lot of your time. So unless you're retired and you just want to, if covering your costs is fine, um, but it's only going to cover, it's not going to necessarily cover your capital costs. You're going to cover your own ongoing costs. And for a lot of people that ends up being a, um, no, no, I don't think I want to do that kind of thing. So if someone has a clever idea, in a good location, you know, a nice a facility with some potential for that experience and call me crazy, but I think people buy the experience. I think they buy the wine because they're having a ball. Um, hopefully when they get it home, it's as good as they remember. Um, What's uh? What do you think is a good starting point for production for like year one in a semi-rural location? Like, what do you think would be a good, like a smart starting point for case production in year one? Well, I'd like to look at how they're going to sell their wine and where they're going to sell their wine. That for me, because I, I usually start people with a financial forecast. And that's one of the things that I create. And part of that is, 
okay, so how much can you sell? So, and that's where I start. I don't start with how much can you make? I start with how much can you sell and try and be reasonable um, depending on where you're located and what kind of venue you're going to have if you're having an on-site venue uh, and, and work backwards from there. Um, what I like clients to get up to, what I, what I found is, you know, if you're in an area of the country that has a fairly low cost of living, then you can be in the 3,000, 4,000 case range. You can get to there and be profitable. And when I say profitable, it means you then from there on are able to cover your startup costs and your ongoing costs, right? If you're in an area of the country that has a higher cost of living, then you're looking at closer to seven thousand cases uh, to to be profitable and and most of your wine should be sold direct to consumer which is the highest margin so though you know like where to start it depends a little bit you know actually it depends a lot on how you will sell your wine are you selling it direct to consumer so that's your highest margin. If you're selling it at wholesale, your margin's cut in half. So that makes a big difference. Uh, and then realistically, how many people are going to visit either your winery, your tasting room, your, your website? Like how many people are going to come there? And during what times of the year? I, I have a client in Montana, you know, his tasting room may be open all the time, but there are times in the year there's not a lot of people. Uh, and his tasting room and his winery are in the same building. So basically he makes wine. Um, but, you know, January and February, not a whole lot of people in Montana going out, really. Uh, so so that's, that's where people have to look. And... Um, I know I, I do a, I speak at a, a conference of people who are mostly home winemakers and they keep telling me, you know, we, we want you to focus on a smaller, like a thousand cases. And, um, and the reality, bucks a bottle. right. The reality it's hard unless you're in, you know, Napa, Walla Walla, maybe the Willamette Valley, uh, maybe you're doing ice wine in the Finger Lakes. It's hard to be to, and when I say successful, means you're selling all your wine and paying all your costs. <laughs> it's hard to do that if you're less than three thousand cases. Um, I don't think people like if you're going to build up to three or four thousand cases, then you build up. Um, but you do need to you do need to build that up fairly quickly like within four or five years so you know one question i'm dying to ask and i don't even uh i certainly don't want to start anything so if i were to pick some random geographical location and a random varietal of grapes and 
uh, pose as someone calling your office and saying, hey, I'd like to start a winery. Um, I'd like to grow Cabernet Sauvignon in Springfield, Missouri. Um, okay. I think it's a safe bet that there's not a winery in the town I'm located in growing that grape. Uh, you know, maybe there's one I don't know about. I don't know. I apologize in advance, but you, I think you get where I'm going with this because how do you address that 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 point that sometimes you have to tell a person not to grow the varietal they love in the location they're in? How do you address that with them? Well, that's why I start with what are you trying to create and what experience are you trying to create? Because I will get people who say, you know, I, I love Nap Cabs. I'm on the wine clubs of some of the best wineries in the world. And I want to start a winery and I'm in on the eastern part of the country. And so my question to, to that person is, okay, what experience are you trying to create? That's what should drive what you make and where you're located. And if you're starting with what you grow, you know, all those things dovetail together. And you may then decide if you say to me, I want to make this wine that's just going to transcend generations. That's bold. <laughs> it is. There's a winery in California, and that is their vision. Uh, they do it really well. So if you want to do that, then, my, then what I say to people is, okay, you need to be in the right place to do that. You have to have the right location. You have to have the right grapes, have the right process. Your price point is going to be in the hundreds. You have to create that. There are parts of the world where that's going to be a really tough sell. And that's what I talk to people about. But if you tell me that I want to create this place where people come and they bring in their families and they just enjoy life with all the people that they love. And then you tell me that you want a cab that sells for $300. What I'll tell you is like those two things don't line up. That's what I say to people. Like start with what you want to create. And then let's talk about what that looks like in a wine. Where does that product need to come from? You don't have to buy local grapes. You don't have to grow on your grapes. You can get wine from all over the world and finish it and bottle it under your label. If that matches the experience you're trying to create, you can do that. But those things have to line up because when they don't line up, people won't buy your wines and then you've just created this super expensive hobby. I think you do a good job summing that up and taking the hurt feels out of it, essentially. That's why you do what you do for a living. It's <laughs> really cool. I think you've answered a whole bunch of questions that I, that I had right at once right there. There are so many times I hear the phrase, it's a Missouri thing, maybe. Maybe they say it in other states. But have you ever heard the term, bless your heart? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Usually usually followed by uh, some sort of negative statement or, or following some sort of negative statement. Yes. Or, or something to the effect of, I'll pray for you. Um, right. You know, right after. Well, 
Um, there, there have been many times on the trade show floor or on the phone or through an email exchange that I'm sincerely feeling that sentiment, you know, as someone who's just coming into the industry or, or something like that. But I just thought of an important angle on this. And I'm reminded of it because of the, the mitigation exercise you were engaged in during harvest. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, maybe the title for this podcast should have in parentheses three question mark starting a winery. Um, because we're covering a, a couple sides of, of the lifespan of a, of a typical wine label, both directly and indirectly here, which is really cool because just because someone has to this point not had any shortage of answers to their own questions doesn't mean that it's ever too late to bring in an expert. And I think that that is part of what I do too, is um, I I get calls from people like the one that you're talking about where like we've had a winery and we've made it X far and something's not working for us and we need, and we need some help with that. And, uh, and then, and I do that. So some, sometimes it's winemaking and I'm a consulting winemaker. So I will come out, taste through everything that you have or everything that the winery has and talk about, okay, so what, you know, what, what happened to get them to this place what would you need to do to get them to where you want? And then what is, you know, your next steps in the next several years to get where you want to go um, from the winemaking point of view. And and that might include equipment. It might include training. And I talk to people about like, let's look at your sales and they'll say like sales aren't happening. Okay. Well, you know, why aren't sales happening? And that generally comes back to the question of like, well, what experience did you actually create with what you have? (laughs) And, and, you know, not what did you try to create, but what did you actually create and try and get them to kind of look at it in a new way and open their eyes to usually the problem is, is that, they've tried to create like several different types of experiences in the same thing and they don't have a cohesive experience. And that goes all the way through with their packaging in there and their pricing and what the tasting room looks like. It's amazing to me. And and I, and I've seen this like my own winery. We went and did a tasting room that was in town and it looked nothing like the scene at the winery. I mean, it was just like worlds apart. It creates this confusion for consumers. And when consumers are confused, they don't buy your stuff. They buy someone else's stuff. So I do that. And I, and I try and help people like bring it all together. I so wish that I could have brought a hidden camera to uh, a winery. I visited in Adelaide. I swear to you, this place had the most legit, rustic feel for an ancient winery. Walking in, it was just so visually stimulating, and and the equipment nerd me was just—I mean, I was enthralled 
when I was looking at their process, they had things like um, fermentation vessels no one in the U.S. Would, would consider using, or maybe someone is, I don't know. But just imagine big stone slabs sealed with paraffin in the shape of an open top square fermenter. And, you know, a hillbilly like me has never seen something like that. So I was fascinated. And then I saw a, a distemmer, which was PTO driven by the tractor. And it was primarily constructed of wood. It was great. Wow. So when I walked in the tasting room, I expected a rustic down-to-earth experience. What I got, I think, was a frustrated um, punk rocker who was confrontational uh, to the point where I actually had to leave the tasting. I just, I mean, I had to physically remove myself from the space. Because without provocation, this person was introducing each wine in a way that was designed to incite a riot. And, I mean, I did a character, like an impersonation of the person after we left. Once we got back in the car, my Australian winemaker buddy and mine. And uh, and it was hysterical, but I could never do it again sober. <laughs> but it went something like, you know, I did in a in a Kiwi accent, which this guy was originally from New Zealand, working in Australia, I said, we interrogate our grapes daily. And then, <laughs> you know, last harvest we did, uh, we brought our grapes in with a kid's plastic shovel with half a handle, something to that effect. But it, it reminded me of that experience when you said um, that it's got a jive, you know, like the, the thing you're trying to to make. And that reminds me of an old school saying in business mission statement. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, um, it reminds me of the saying, you know, dress for the job you want. Um, I think the whole experience has to kind of run together and to wrap up, I think basically what you're saying is how much wine you're going to make, how much you can actually sell of it at what price point from what grapes in what kind of an atmosphere what type of personnel presenting it and selling it to who are all very important things to to nail down identify or commit to prior to writing any checks in this business yes absolutely because yeah. the reality is is like you don't actually have to make your own wine in this country to be a winery you have to sell wine and that's what it comes down to. I do think that wine sh that you make should be good. I think it should be, you know, it should be qualifiably good. I would prefer, like, I think of wineries as places where wine is made. Um, but the reality is it's about wine sales. You should have that understanding of how you're going to make that happen before you start, because most of your costs come up front and they're not small. Even if you start small, your costs are not small. So you need to know when you're doing this, that in four or five years, you're going to be able to start making that money back. That is all sales and how you're going to make them. Once, once someone comes to your site and you didn't say this, I said it, but you didn't disagree with me. Maybe you're just being polite. I think people buy the experience. Yes, um, people do buy the experience. Absolutely. I was going to agree with you. It is, and I hate to say this because I'm a winemaker, but it is, in fact, more important than the wine. 
I won't disagree with that. I'm a sucker for it every time. Genevieve, I may have told you this before, but we've seen our share of wineries. The, the two of us have. I mean, we're kind of, mm-hmm. we're on the inside of the industry and, and my friends don't even understand what I do for a living. When I say I sell winery equipment, they ask if I have any wine and I'm like, yeah, I have a bunch. That's not the idea, guys. I don't make wine. I don't also don't sell wine. You know, that's the other common confusion. But when speaking to a stranger, if they happen to ask what my vocation is, uh, you and I have been to a bunch of wineries, but I got to tell you, every single time somebody takes the time to drag me around the property and tell me Frank had a ton of money and he moved here and planted grapes. And now once a year, we squeeze those grapes and ferment the juice. I can't wait to reach for my wallet. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, <laughs> I fall for it every single time. You know, we go in the tasting room and by now I know a little bit about the story. I know what they're growing and how long they've been growing it or where they're getting it from. And, you know, you might have a rough idea of what the reputation of that varietal from that part of the world is or whatever the case might be. You're excited to try the wine by the time you get to see their process. Would you say that that's a fairly universal requirement? Because a minute ago when you were saying that a winery, you think of it as a place where wine is made. Should we, if we're, if our whole business model is like a storefront in a hopping tourist area with lots of foot traffic, should we still go through the trouble of starting a winery to have some, some gadgets around it so it looks legit in terms of production? Well, I think it's, I think you need to decide like what you are and what you do. And that, and part of that will then dictate how you sell. While I would like wineries to make all their own wine, I don't tell my clients that that's what they have to do because that's not the experience everybody is trying to create. And that's not necessarily what every consumer is looking for. I think the key when you're talking about like sales is one, you need to be consistent in talking about what you do and who you are. And then you make a connection with your customers. And that connection is going to be driven a lot by the demographics of your target consumers. I don't think you have to make wine as a winemaker. Like I would like people to make one, but you, you don't actually don't have to. What you do have to do is know what you're trying to create and do that and execute it. That's, I think it all needs to go down to what experience are you trying to create and really drill down into what does that mean? Because uh, if you're selling a wine at 150, 300 bucks a bottle, you need to have made that like from, from ground up. But if okay. you're selling it at 20 bucks a bottle, you probably don't. Well, if it's, I mean, here's what I picture as a consumer. If it's 20 bucks a bottle and I'm having a good time and, you know, I feel valued by the people presenting the product to me and they're taking the time to explain it and why and and how and what for. I mean, whatever the whatever the drive is for the product, it's, you know, percentage of proceeds going to whatever charity or Hey, we got this fruit from a place everybody's heard of, which is legend for growing this grape. You know, something 
something to that effect. You know, if it's got some sizzle and it sells, great, I'll buy it. People who are wanting to come into this industry tend to be more serious wine drinkers than the average population and are drinking wines and know about wines and know about how wine comes to be at a level that is well above, even the above average consumer. You and I are not even close to the average consumer, not even remotely. I am a serious drinker though. You don't even need to stick that word wine in there. (laughs) (laughs) But most consumers like don't really know or care where they're wine came from or where the grapes come from i mean we think it because we're in the industry that everybody knows that cabernet sauvignon and merlot are two different types of grapes but the reality is that most people do not in fact know that so it's important to keep in mind when you're coming into this industry if you're thinking about starting a winery you are already not the average consumer so wait, let me stop you. You have a daughter in college, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, where's she at on the wine thing? Are they at that age? Are they even thinking about buying the same kind of wine again? Or are they, do you think they have any sort of brand loyalty or grape varietal loyalty or anything? Well, you know, my daughter is not going to be your average consumer because she grew up in Hillsburg, California with parents in the wine industry. Okay, that's um, <laughs> And she's she's been tasting wine and she's got a great palate. Um, as a mother, I'm thankful that um, she doesn't have the enzyme that breaks down alcohol. And so she can't actually drink very much. And as a mom, I'm like, yes. As a person in the wine industry, I'm thinking like, oh, damn. Uh, So she's not, she's, you know, she's also not your average consumer because she does know what all of these, and she's, you know, she'll come to my house and she's like, mom, do you have one of those German Rieslings? Can we try that? (laughs) Did you keep one for me? That Um, just hurt my heart. I mean, you know that, you know that, that New York, Michigan, and Washington exist, right? I, I do. I do. And I I need to, it's true, I need to get wines from, I love Rieslings. I love Rieslings. And um, and I do need to get some some Rieslings from there. Um, oh, but, okay. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll yeah. let you slide on that because, I mean, not everything in my wine room is from North America, but... Um, Anyway, and the hard part too is uh, in where I live in the world, I can get, so I'm in Oregon, I I can get any, I can get pinots, you know, until I can like bathe in them. In fact, I've got five gallons in a uh, carboy bathroom waiting to be bottled. Um, But after that, like I can get European wines. And, and I can get, uh, I can get wines from outside the U S but getting wines from like finger lakes, that's, it's more difficult, which is unfortunate. No, it isn't. Cause you know, Joe. So here's what I do know, Joe. Here's what we're going to do. I've got a two bottle box, um, that I could find if, 
if I could see it, typical male, if I can't see it, it's gone. Um, uh, I think I know where I can dig up my two bottle mailer. I will send you some statement Riesling, some, some Riesling that to me, to my palate is fair and representative of, of the breed. And, uh, I would, so I'll send you Riesling and all I ask is that you send Pinot, uh, from okay. the United States and not from the Russian river Valley. Okay. Well, that's okay. Cause I'm in the Willamette. Yes. So I love Russian river Valley Pinots and, um, they're, they have saved our marriage. Uh, my wife and I are still married because of Russian river Valley Pinot Noirs because she was trying to sell me on the masculine form of Pinot Noir. And this was pretty much in violation of our prenup. Um, and I'm just kidding about that, but seriously, I'm ready to like fist fight over Chardonnay and Pinot and Riesling. And, um, you know, my idea of Chardonnay prior to, uh, taking vows was, you know, basically all stainless, green apple, mineral, mm -hmm. you know, acid driven, uh, super fruit forward, and clean and rather austere in comparison to the West mm -hmm. Chard. My wife likes, you know, typical butter bomb, 1980s Chardonnay, she, old fashioned. And so we finally came to a, a midpoint and we found the same in Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley. It's not bombastic. It's it's right. not, but and I can find, you know, Santa Lucia Highlands fruit, and I can find DNJ barrels in some of them. Um, wow. And I and I love it. But um, I promise not to disappoint on on the exchange program if I send you some. Okay. I can I can totally do that. I'll give you two different styles, both from the Willamette Valley. All right, that's fair. So I think right there might be a good spot to wrap up. Uh, <laughs> Before we start delving into uh, what wines we're going to try. so Because that could go on for a long time. That's true. But I'll tell you something that's funny that I just absolutely love is this is the fourth episode of uh, Eno Tools University season one and all four so far somehow rosé found its way into the discussion <laughs> it's it's insidious it's fantastic rosé is a fantastic wine okay so where are you i don't you know at? why people put it down i i love it I now love listen rosé. listen where are you at on this do you like provence style oh see i i'm one of these people who likes a wine depending on the mood that I'm in and what I'm drinking and what time of day it is. So um, I, but if I had to pick one, I would go for an off dry. Uh, I do like a little bit more fruit and a little, and some, a little bit more body and oomph in it. Um, and I do like a high-colored rosé. Okay, so it's, I'm going to make a prediction, and uh, you're going to laugh. I swear to you that you're going to think this is funny. But I have predicted trends in the wine industry, and I'm about to predict another one. You ready for this? Okay. The valorization of residual sugar tolerance. 
this is going to be the next thing. You just said off dry. Mm -hmm. People are going to start coming out of the closet about the fact that they don't mind a little bit of sugar in their wine. I guarantee this is the next trend. Well, and it's, I think, I don't know that it, I think when you say like it's the next trend, it needs to be the next trend in the people who drink wine that is over like $35 a bottle because under that, that's always been the trend. True. People love their sweet wines. And and now that I'm making wine, you know, on the Eastern side of the U S you guys love your sweet wines. Well, wait a second. I'm, I'm reminded of my good friend, Johannes Reinhardt up in the finger lakes. The man is a living legend. And he once told me back when I was a young pup, so, you know, so malleable. Um, I'm kidding. I'm, I've always been a hard-headed SOB. Uh, he said to me that in his Riesling process, uh, at the time he was working at Anthony Road, he said, the best fruit, they ferment dry. And so that would explain what you just said about the price point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what bugs me is, you know, you've had this wine, you've had somebody's wine that was like this. Um, what bugs me is when their ego won't let them have any residual sugar in the wine and two tenths of a percent of residual sugar would have made the difference between I'm waiting for my double gold and we're sold out. You're killing me because I fight it. I fight adding a little bit of, or having a little bit of RS in wines that I consider dry, but you're right. It does in the, in the, it probably is an ego thing. And it's also a doing most of your winemaking California thing as well. Um, it does soften the wine. And, um, and my, some of my favorite, I mean, most of my favorite wines are actually have sweetness and, and they're Rieslings. Are you? Um, I just I think it tastes great. Do you have a pretty? I mean, this is a dumb question because okay, you're a winemaker and an engineer, so this is really stupid for me to ask it this way, but I'm going to just let it rip. Um, again, this is an organic format. Um, I think there's a tipping point, maybe not just to your palate or maybe not just to mine, but I think there's a tipping point where it. Sure, it'll soften the wine. I think that it'll it'll walk over and rotate that little stick on the uh, horizontal blinds and shed just a, a touch more light on the fruit without you realizing that it's there if it's done right. Yeah, I think what I like to look at for wines and, and is is it in balance? And yes. so if you're going to have some sweetness in that wine, you need to also have acid and the fruit needs to balance that. So all those things have to be in balance. And when it becomes too much or too little is when it is when you're not balanced. And, and oftentimes that's because you've got like this, you've decided, well, it has to have you know, 5% RS or whatever it is. And you like, that's the sweetness level that we're, that we're looking at. And you're not looking at, well, what is the rest of the wine like? Like, what is the acid like? What is the fruit like? What's coming out this year in this wine? 
And then what is the right sugar level to balance those pieces? And so that's what I like to look at. And so if you have a really high acid wine that's got lots and lots of fruit, it can handle more more sugar and be a balanced wine. So that's what I look at. You know, you um, you just reminded me one of my favorite characters in the wine business, my friend Murphy Moore, who's down in uh, North Carolina. Um, Murphy said to me once at a... It was rather late in the day, um, just to paint the picture. We, I think we were uh, going through some barrels, doing a barrel tasting on Chardonnays. Um, at the time, Murphy was working at Shelton. And I was incredulous when I tried the Chardonnay. I, I was not easily convinced that it was North Carolina fruit. And I thought I did a really good job holding my cards next to my vest so nobody could tell that that's what I was thinking was that there's where is where is this from? You know, kind of kind of thought. And Murphy already knew me so well. She could read me like a book. And she said, Joe, acid comes in a bag. You know, (laughs) (laughs) yes, it does. So if you do you think there's a certain degree of that where maybe the fruit isn't as expressive or maybe wasn't picked as early as you would have liked where, okay, we're going to make an acid adjustment. And now we've got room to, to, uh, you know, turn up the, the fruit a little with just a, just a whisper of sugar to make this into the wine. And wants. is that, do you think there's a lot of that going on? Well, yeah. And I, I think it depends a lot on where you are and what the chemistry of your grapes are when they come in. Um, and and what you're trying to create but yeah acid you know a little bit of acid sometimes can bring out the what you want and allow you to to balance the sweetness that you're looking for i like to and this is we're going to do winemaking i like to add acid as early in the process as possible that's Um, cool so what happens what what happens when you make an acid adjustment during fermentation? I mean, specifically, can you, without, you know, having to write a 10-page thesis on that, is that easy to answer? What happens is it integrates. Uh, one, you adjust your pH, and usually that's the first thing that, like, clues you in to you need to make an adjustment is the pH. Because it's hard so, to to taste what the acid is going to taste like when you've got juice coming in and it's like a 20% sugar. Um, but the pH and the TA are going to clue you in to you probably need to make an adjustment. And then if you make it early, by the time you finish fermentation and by the time you finish aging, that acid has, has integrated. And so you're not tasting this sharpness. When you add it at the end, you can taste it. You can feel it. Like it feels acidic, even though it's the exact same acid that you would have, that's in the grapes that you would have added at the beginning. But when you add it at the end, it's not, it doesn't fully integrate as well. Um, Sometimes that's what you want. Sometimes you want a sharpness to this wine to balance some, a, fruitiness or a a residual sugar and that's what you want that's what you're trying to create i like to front load 
I wouldn't, I do winemaking. I like to front load as much as possible so that it has a chance to integrate so that by the time we get to the end, I'm making tiny adjustments. That's my philosophy with, with acid. Try and add it early. The folks in the on the listening end of this conversation, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've spoken to Genevieve on many occasions, and uh, I learned something every single time. So if you're starting a winery, maybe looking for a, a troubleshooter to come in and take a look at your operation, which oftentimes is therapeutic and cathartic because it'll help you to remember the reason why you got into this business to begin with. The capability of a person like Genevieve at uh, PEMDAS Solutions also, um, gosh darn it, I went off that Google page already. There it is. Um, winery.consulting. Winery. And this that's the website, winery.consulting. That's just it. Right. There's, there's no .com. There's no .org, .net, .us, or .wine. It's just winery.consulting. Bang, you're there. Um, that's how you find Genevieve and the way you find Joe is, um, uh, lately look in my garage, just kidding. Go to, uh, enotools.com and, uh, or maybe just look on a, a crush pad near you. You might find me there. So thank you folks for listening to season one, episode four of Enotools University, how to re or how to how to restart or how to start a winery and that's a that's a wrap so thank you genevieve thank you joe cheers cheers